Oh, hey, I uh, didn't see you there. Uh, yeah, you don't know this, but I'm actually watching you right now. Just kidding. Um, uh, it's actually my first time recording a podcast. My name is Davis Gammons. Uh, just recently turned 28. And currently recording this on July 4th. So, happy independence. Uh, good luck blowing up them aliens in the sky as they invade us again. Uh, so... This being my first time, I don't know what exactly the structure of this podcast is going to be, but to start things off, I decided to record this as a little preview of what is potentially going to be called Unreal, colon, the original cinema, uh, the colon part of silent. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, this review was written by me on my letterbox. That's right, I've also got a letterbox account. Uh, Davis underscore Gammons, that is Gammons, G-A-M-M-O-N-S, at Letterboxd. So, if you like my words here, uh, how about reading them over here? So, let's get started with this little preview. My review for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. How long between Sunday's box office tallies and the inevitable announcement Disney makes that James Mangold's Star Wars film was pushed back two years or just cancelled? Two weeks feels a little generous. Ironic that for a film so intent on redeeming the Indiana Jones franchise while simultaneously sending it out on the high note that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull lacked, Dial of Destiny only serves to build up upon its predecessor's flaws and then some. For one, and it's what everyone's been pointing out, so I'll just get it out of the way, the over-reliance on CGI over practical effects is one thing, but for a film with a purported budget of just under $300 million, Disney's been getting away with $200 million Marvel films with subpar CGI over the last few years, but Indiana Jones for at least the first three films were so acclaimed for their elaborate stunt work and practical effects on a far smaller budgets, even adjusted for inflation. Whereas here, it's hard to believe that more than just $100 million is on the screen. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was lambasted, and rightfully so, for its low-quality CGI work. But at least the film around said CGI had that sense of scale and pulp as the original films. Even with the director as versed and varied with action as Mangold at the helm, the action and filmmaking feel like they could have been done by anybody, particularly anybody at Disney, as the film utilizes the same dull look as most of their recent blockbusters, even when it's completely unnecessary. A street corner, CGI. Stunt doubles, CGI. Boy. Skylines? Boy, does this movie love skylines lit exactly the same as the actors. Have sunsets just been extinct since 2017? And what's worse is that while Crystal Skull effects work doesn't hold up to modern scrutiny, it was at least mostly utilizing it for things that simply couldn't be accomplished through practicality, i.e. nuking a town and launching a lead-line fridge from it, having a Super Saiyan force cutter that, if they tried to do it for real, the entirety of Hawaii would have been deforested by Take 3, a giant valley crumbling as a UFO was built on rises from underneath, and, of course, the most impossible thing to do for real, Shia LaBeouf swinging with monkeys from Vine Vine. Wait a minute. The action in Dial Destiny certainly has its zany moments, but virtually none of it reaches the insanity of its predecessor. Yet it feels the need to enhance everything with a computer that it can. I know Harrison Ford is in an age where attempting some of these stunts would be dangerous, but come on, there's no one who looks like Ford from behind to jump from a moving tuk-tuk to another? 
And in the few moments Disney allows a crew to do something so scandalous as to film an actual background, the cinematography is so unbelievably murky that the actors in frame are borderline pixelated. Seriously, what possesses Disney to push scenes with obviously DH-esque actors so crisp and clear for you to marvel at the totally not-fake-looking faces of older performers made young again, and everything else has to have a softer focus than a Brian De Palma film? But like the better Marvel films of past times, or even the classic Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Harry Potter films, where most of the effects have aged well, and others are also effects, I could look past such digital trickery if the story, or at least the characters, could hold my interest. The story itself is playing things as safe as possible, at least for the first two acts and half of the third act, where it takes a turn that'll either have people cheering or throwing their hands in the air in probably negative bewilderment. To speak for myself, I actually wish that there is more of what the third act does, because it's not only bold from a storytelling standpoint, but a challenging one, and really the only time where the characters feel like they're in actual danger both physically and emotionally. Most of what precedes it is just overlong, uncreative chase sequence after chase sequence with occasional bounce of exposition dumps, as well as the easily the weakest puzzle solving of the franchise. It makes one wonder, it makes one realize just how influential the series has been in its use of the Hitchcock MacGuffin as a storytelling device. And while it is a method that can be used well, it's one that's been so abused by the blockbuster system in recent years that by this point, it's gone from a smart and loving tribute to cinema gone by to a copy of a copy of a copy. While Ford himself is definitely having fun donning the fedora one last time, I feel like what will really separate fans from flayers will be the supporting cast, namely in Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Helena Shaw. Both the actress and character have been subject to criticism as allegedly yet another attempt by Hollywood at large to force another strong woman character down our throats. One who never makes any mistakes and emasculates the male hero, and along with his and the series' more chauvinistic views that don't play well in modern times. Not to mention serving as a mouthpiece for the progressive views that many studios love to pay lip service to without a hint of self-aware hypocrisy. Then I stole it. It's called capitalism. Says a company that refused the grieving father's wish of having an image of Spider-Man over his four-year-old son's final resting place. Outside of that, Helena Shaw isn't here to steal the hat and whip, but that doesn't necessarily make her less anchor-inducing. I haven't seen any of Waller-Bridge acting outside of Solo A Star Wars Story, but I'm very well versed in her writing, and I think she's very excellent in the latter. With her work in James Bond's most recent adventure, No Time to Die, one of the elements that makes that film so great. As a performer, she certainly carries herself with the confidence of a great character, but it appears that when she's not writing herself, no one's able to utilize her talents properly, and the result is frankly one of the most obnoxious characters I've seen in a blockbuster since any of the Jurassic World films. For one, she's a walking crip delivery system, which is hard for me to like in even good movies, but she's on the level of Ryan Reynolds and everything over the last five years that wasn't Free Guy. Just non-stop jokes that don't solicit so much as a chuckle. But unlike the local comedy club, there's no offstage cane to pull them away, so you're stuck with a self-absorbed smarm for two and a half hours. Which, once again, why does every blockbuster nowadays have to be two and a half hours? It doesn't help that for all our cheap shots fired at Ford's age, Ford hardly ever fires back, making their chemistry's characters and performers largely pulseless. The rest of the supporting cast is a mix of forgettable and wasted talent. Ethan Isidore might as well be wearing a baseball cap saying, not short round. And while he's not particularly annoying, he serves no real purpose only to move the plot forward by doing something stupid in a way only a child can do. Mads Mikkelsen is surprisingly disappointing as the lead villain, 
which a Nazi, come on, should be far more memorable to turn for him. But like the script fails Waller Bridget with comedy, Nicholson is not giving anything juicy to say out of one brief interaction with a black hotel employee. Any deviousness is left to his trio of trigger-happy henchmen led by Boyd Holbrook, who has zero personality. While it's understandable to not have John Reese davies a saw on account of him being a Welshman in brownface, but heck, if you're going to have him appear regardless in 2023, you might as well have him there for the full ride. He even offers to go with him, only to be politely rejected. It gives off serious Rose Tico in the Rise of Skywalker vibes. The fact that Antonio Banderas is third build on the cast list is the most unintentionally funny part of the movie, considering he only gets about five lines across ten minutes of screen time. What's not funny, though, is that, like Reese Davies, Banderas brings more warmth and likability to the film than any of the other supporting players do, so when he leaves, I felt genuinely bad to see him go. But probably the biggest and ultimate downfall of this purported series finale is just how overall pointless it feels. I won't do that thing a lot of true fans do, when something new they don't like suddenly makes the last new they didn't like good or even great. Crystal Skull on the whole simply isn't a good movie. But for its faults, it felt like the people involved from the direction, to the writing, to the performers also felt like they understood and respected the influence and power behind the name Indiana Jones. The execution of it may have left something to be desired, but at least it possessed enough of what made it feel like something special, and even had the good sense to give its protagonists a sweet and wholesome ending. Dial of Destiny, outside of the enthusiasm of Ford, Waller Bridge, and the underused Reese Davies and Banderas, simply reeks of obligation playing out like a course correction that's too focused on the minutiae of pleasing every possible person that loses the adventurous free spirit that made it so appealing to the masses in the first place. Like The Rise of Skywalker, it's about as hollow and soulless a corporate algorithm as one can get that tries so, so, so hard to pass itself off as anything but where it's borderline insulting to the audience's intelligence. Even with Mango's normally stellar track record, I kept my expectations reasonably mid-level only because of Dial of Destiny's predecessor. But even then, I wasn't expecting this to be the summer film I walked out of feeling just so... empty. For as much criticism as I've levied against it, I'm more angry about what's working behind the curtain than what's on the actual stage. I'm not even as big a fan of the franchise as many others are, really only loving Raiders of the Lost Ark and liking a lot of The Last Crusade. But even on its weaker days, all of Indiana Jones has felt like a labor of love for pure cinematic escapism, until Dial of Destiny, a pixelated cog in a machine wearing wheels clothing. Two stars out of five. Woo! I hadn't finished recording yet, but... Thank you, guys. Let me give you a hug. That was great. By the I'm way, Unreal, impressed. the original cinema, is filmed in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> 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 <laughs>